He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right. Burn blue on the street, loose and complete under sky, so smoky blue green. I can't foresee a Dixie dead sheep, so it danced the sidewalk clean. My memory is muddy, what's this river that I'm in? New Orleans is sinking, man, and I don't want to swim. Oh, you'll be hearing a lot of the Tragically Hip today. Hello, welcome to the program. Brian Lilly, this is Beyond the News. Lowell Green coming up in a few moments. Rick Smith from the Broadband Institute. Uh, and we will talk about the Tragically Hip, and uh, even if people want to call in on that, if that's something that uh, that floats your boat, I'd love to hear from you on it. But we've been talking about the issue of electoral reform for quite a while, and I've been pushing the whole idea that we have to have a referendum. You cannot change how we elect our elected officials without having a vote on it. And it just doesn't make sense, despite the liberals constantly saying when asked about it that we we're going to consult. Here's Miriam Monsa from a little while ago saying all voices must be heard. We're going to engage in a thoughtful and thorough process about the various electoral reform options available Unlike the previous government, we have every interest in making sure that the voices of Canadians are heard throughout this process. Except by letting them vote. Friday, Daryl Bricker and uh, the good folks over at Ipsos released a poll that should shake up the Trudeau Liberals because it shows that 73% of Canadians say electoral reform shouldn't proceed without a national referendum. Daryl Bricker joins me on the line now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Hey, how are you, Brian? I'm well. Before we get to the poll results, a bit of a a shocking news for uh, those of us of a certain age. It's uh, Gord Downey and uh, and Brain Cancer Today. I'm sure you've uh, enjoyed the odd hips uh, track or two over the years. I saw them many times live, and you you really haven't experienced it unless you saw them live. Actually, I remember one time I saw them just as their first album was coming out, because the first manager was actually another pollster, Alan Gregg. Oh, uh, from Decima, and Alan phoned me when he came into town and said, "Hey, you really got to come and see these guys. I've got this new band called The Tragically Hip." So I went with him to Barrymore's, uh, <laughs> and and saw in the Ottawa. band. Yeah, in Ottawa on Bank Street, and it was stunning. I mean, I the amount of energy, uh, the just the, the freshness and everything about this band. It was this Canadian band from Kingston that nobody had heard of. And Alan said, these guys are going to be huge. And he was absolutely right. And uh, when I woke up this morning and, and heard that news, it was obviously a, a big shock because uh, he's uh, somebody that I remember, you know, for over a period of, you know, over probably 25 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, their influence on Canadian music. I mean, how many uh, bands do you know that basically have a career that's Canadian-based and can come to town and sell out the Air Canada Center? Uh, there's not many. And uh, I heard Bill Carroll trying to um, uh, find the right, you know, because Gord Downey's such a great uh, songwriter and lyricist, trying to say, well, who's he like? And he's searching. It came to mind for me right away, Stan Rogers, because he sings about the country. You can go to every part of the country, and the Tragically Hip have written a love song, essentially, 
to yeah, wherever you he's are. Also, he's also very generous to Canadian music. I mean, I saw him actually not last summer, but the summer before at some obscure little folk festival just outside of Hamilton, Ontario, playing with the Sadies. And uh, he was like, he, he could have been playing the ACC. He was that into it and, you know, little crowd, but he was, uh, he was just as amazing playing with him as, as he was with the hip. Well, let's ask about your poll uh, now and get down, talk get down to business. I, I, could talk about, I could talk about music all day, Daryl. You and I could probably talk about anything for, uh, for yeah. hours. We probably have. Uh, but 73%, that is more than uh, I think a lot of people thought. It's similar to a poll that, that we did at the Rebel a little while ago. And it cuts across those who don't want any change and those who do. Explain that. Yeah, well, I think what's uh, what's interesting here is not so much what the outcome is as the process. And that's where the government's really ended up in a bit of a quandary. Because if you do ask the public about uh, whether or not the election system could be better, it's one of those things where they say, well, it can always be better. So at least half of the public says, you know what, maybe we could do some reform. But when you get into the process of reform and what it's going to require, people on something that's fundamental really do feel that a referendum is the best way to gain public approval. So the government may have some great ideas. Uh, the public's not really aware of you know, exactly what the reform is that they would plan, but they, they certainly have a pretty strong view about what the process should be. And they find it hard to accept a fundamental reform that doesn't somehow go to the public. Does this go across uh, age ranges? I, I looked geographically, yeah, it's, it's universe, it, it majority, went across. Majorities everywhere. Okay, so... Everywhere it, and among everyone. Because sometimes, especially with liberal policies, you'll find that um, there's a big shift between 18 to 34-year-olds and everybody else, but not in this one. No, and, 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 and it's not a surprise for 18 to 34-year-olds because they do believe more in kind of consultation and, and, and particularly direct consultation. Uh, but uh, the, the, the only group that's more divided on this are the people who are liberal supporters who are more prepared to take on faith what the, what the government said. But they only got 39% support, 39.5% support in the last election. So it's the other uh, 60, uh, you know, 1% that they have to somehow convince that this is a good idea. Yeah, they got 39% of the 68% of people that voted. So it's far from a majority that, uh, that gives them this mandate. Uh, right. And, and it's not to say that they can't build a case where they say, look, a referendum is not essential, that, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got these other ways of consulting with the public that we think are, you know, fairer, and she's making, uh, the minister's making some arguments about this. Uh, and it's not to say that people can't come on side with that, but where they're starting at right now is they really need to be convinced that a referendum isn't essential. Well, it's, uh, I would say that's an uphill battle for her to convince Canadians, considering that they've been at this since December, trying to say we don't need to go to a referendum. And her answers are only getting weaker. When you start citing Twitter hashtags as consultations, I, I think a lot of Canadians, regardless of partisan stripe, are going to roll their eyes. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not a story that's, uh, that's, uh, that's particularly compelling right now that uh, Canadians are being told about this. And the other part of this, Brian, is that when you look at all the issues confronting the country today, you know, if I go out and ask people what's the most important issue confronting the country today, this one doesn't come up in the top 20. So, you know, it's sort of like, why are we talking about this? And why do you want to change it? And you want to do it without really, um, uh, you know, explaining it to me in a way that I can uh, accept that it's just okay for you to go ahead with this. So I need to be able to have a vote. 
in order to actually endorse what the decision what the decision is going to be. So, um, uh, yeah, uphill battle, I think, is the best way to describe it. All right, Daryl Bricker from Ipsos. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks. All right, and we will be back. Lowell Green, get his thoughts on where all of this is going, and uh, maybe he's got a thought or two about the tragic limp as well. Or maybe not. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. With Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, I think that there's a problem here. A voice just don't sound Just around 11 o'clock, we will uh, get an update on from the doctors treating Gord Downey and find out what's going on with him, with treatment. Of course, the news released this morning, the band saying that they're going out on tour one last time because uh, their front man, Gord Downey, has, uh, the band, of course, being his tragic lip, their front man has terminal brain cancer, but the doctor, 11 o'clock, and if we're... If they're still going while we're on, we're going to take that live. If not, we'll bring it to you as soon as we can. Lowell Green joins me now. Uh, Lowell, you're, were you surprised by this? Another poll showing the overwhelming majority of Canadians want a vote on the refer- on uh, electoral reform? Well, I'd be surprised if, if it showed anything other than that. I mean, anybody with a brain or even half a brain or if you're a liberal, a quarter of a brain – would would have to agree that if if you're going to change the way we elect our government, the way we essentially run the country, that the people have got to have a say. I mean, if if you're talking about democracy, well, democracy means that the people have a say in this, and not only that, but the uh, to to my knowledge, uh, and I'm not alone in this. It doesn't seem to me that the liberals have even begun to explain to us why we need to change. Uh, I think I think the argument, the debate, should start with that. Okay, uh, it's not a perfect system, but it's a pretty darn good system that's created a damn good country. So why do we need to change? It seems to me that's where the debate should start, and it has not started there yet. Why do we need to change? Can anybody explain this to me? Because Twitter. Uh, that, that seems to be Mary Monsef's response. Let me just uh, point this out, and this you is know, what I, I find just, fascinating here. Can I just comment here. On, on her? I mean, if, uh, other if, than she's a sad excuse for explaining her own policy? Uh, to me, you know, she sounds and acts and thinks uh, like a 12-year-old. I, I have a 12-year-old granddaughter who I think would be more capable of serious practical thought than, than this woman. I mean, it's unbelievable that they would put someone like this in the foreground of something as important as changing the way we, we elect our governments. I, I can't believe that this totally inexperienced, uh, it, I'm, I'm not even, oh, I better, I better leave it there. I don't want right. to insult the woman, but I mean, my God, I mean, it's like putting a 12-year-old in charge of the country. You're, you're not the first person to say that. Last week I got calls on that with oh. people saying very similar things. Let me uh, mention this, is that uh, liberals and supporters of Changing the electoral system will say, well, we had a vote. We had a vote in the election, and the liberals promised this, so therefore we can do it. 
there were two questions asked, or at least two, on this issue in the poll. And the first one they said uh, was, do you agree or disagree? Canada's election system works fine as it is. There is no need to make major changes at the present time. 52% disagreed with that statement. 48% agreed. So 52% are willing to say, hey, you know what? Absolutely, we can change. But then when asked, okay, do you change with or without a referendum? Oh, no, no, we need to vote. That should send a message to Mary Monsef and Justin Trudeau. Well, yeah, if, if they're listening. I, I haven't seen very much evidence of that either, that, that they're listening to what we're saying. But, you know, it's, it's not surprising to me. I've just returned my wife and I from eight days in British Columbia. And this, the opposition to this so-called reform without a referendum is being led by the media. This is one of the few times when the media, almost en masse, almost everywhere, is opposed to the idea of not having a referendum. So uh, I, this is one more reason why I think the people have are, are obviously paying attention but to at least something. I, as far think. as the media goes, you think that uh, the media is giving uh, Justin Trudeau a free pass over his manhandling of Gord Brown and his elbowing of Ruth Ellen Brasso? Well, I'm not saying a free pass, but certainly I think a very easy path. Uh, first of all, you know, most of the stories that I have read start out with the phrase, the accidental elbowing. Well, was it accidental? I mean, wh- wh- why the assumption that it was accidental? It seems to me that if you fire your arm in or your, with, you know, and your fist is attached to your arm into a crowd of people and you hit someone, is that accidental? I mean, I, to me, this is... Uh, well, and, and even if it was accidental, why did it happen? Because he was grabbing Gord Brown, said to me, which was they, not accidental. Yeah, to me... The, the issue here is not the elbowing. This is really collateral damage. The real issue is marching down, obviously in a fit, in a huff, charging through people, telling them to F, uh, get the F out of his way, which, by the way, the media, for the most part, is ignoring, grabbing Gord Brown. To me, that's, that's the worst thing. The, the, the fact that, that the elbow got thrown or whatever happened, that's, that's collateral damage. So it seems to me that with the media concentrating on the elbow, that they're giving him a very easy path. That's not the most serious issue here. All right. Oh, by the way, just before yeah. I go, I have to tell you, we flew back from Kelowna, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful part of the country. Everybody should see it. We landed at Edmonton, stayed about an hour and a half there, and a guy uh, got on uh, the plane in Edmonton coming to Ottawa. So he got discussing this thing with Trudeau. That some of these ideas out there are absolutely crazy. This guy claimed up and down that by Trudeau doing what he did, marching in there and knocking people, etc., etc., grabbing people, that he saved what he claimed to be a major kerfuffle. He said he saved a fight. He said, what, what, what are you talking about? He said, no, no, he said, there would have been a much bigger fight had he not gone in there. There's no way I could dissuade this guy in any way. Where these people get these ideas, I have no idea. I understand uh, while you're in Kelowna, Kathleen Wynne's crazy uh, Leap Manifesto <laughs> carbon plan was uh, a, a talk. You know issue? what? I, I, like, is she already toking up on something here? I mean, this would just, her plan to begin with would destroy the auto industry, and about a hundred thousand jobs are gone. Would add uh, the, somewhere between twenty five hundred and thirty five hundred dollars per year per household cost switching from natural gas. Not only that, how the heck am I supposed to switch from that? I mean, my whole house is all geared up for natural gas, including my barbecue. Well, if I have be to a, go electrical, how the hell is that going to work? It's going to be a great, great economic uh, stimulus law because we're all going to have to spend every penny we have. But, 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 but think of this now. 
We're out in B.C., very close to Alberta, okay? And there's a lot of Alberta. In fact, I played golf with an Alberta couple. They are just sickened by what they are hearing from the east. They wanted to, They don't want pipelines. They want to destroy the natural gas. The woman that we were playing golf with, a lovely woman, said, why do they hate us? Why do you people in Ontario hate us out here? And I want people to think about that. Think of how all of this is playing in Alberta, which is already suffering drastically. It, it is pushing Western separatism. Got to oh, run there, Lowell. Thanks for the time. I'm not saying separatism, but I'm telling you, they, were, oh, I, they, they weren't mad. They were hurt. They are really mark, hurt. Mark my words, it's going to return. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good morning. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. That was Lowell Green. Back after this. News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Eleven o'clock. Doctors will be giving an update on the treatment for. Gord Downey, frontman for The Tragically Hit. We will bring that to you as soon as we can. Uh, Rick Smith joins me now. Uh, he is the executive director of the Broadbent Institute. Last week he was upset with me for, uh, you know, inventing yet another name. So I read your boring title this week, Rick. <laughs> I never want you to be boring, Brian. <laughs> Before we get into the... That would be letting your listeners down, surely. Before we get into um, the the, the news of the week, because we try and talk to you every Tuesday, uh, and we haven't talked since um, Elbowgate, as it is unfortunately called, uh, I want to ask you, we are men of a certain age, uh, you can't escape the tragically hip, and uh, this, this is just horrible news for anyone, any family, but I guess it's touching music fans across the country. Yeah, it's really it's it is horrible news. My heart goes out to uh, his wife and uh, Gord's four kids. I mean, this is this really is the soundtrack of our adult lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've seen Gord Downey uh, at summer music festivals. Um, spent a lot of time in the Halliburton area, so I love that Bob Cajun. I mean, it's nothing better than <laughs> driving around on a on a warm summer day, blasting Bob Cajun on the radio, and uh, you know, it's just. There it is. There we go. There we go. Yeah, just uh, terrible, really terrible news this morning for for all Canadians. Yeah. The uh, let, let's stick with uh, with a bit of political because we're going to be in and out of uh, the Gord Downey news for the next while. But let's uh, let's stick with the political. And, and by the way, people are already calling in to talk about this and other issues. We'll get to your phone calls right after Rick. It's five two one talk five two one eight two five five. The whole elbow incident. Uh, I was just speaking with Lowell Green, and he said that. He's flying back from Kelowna. Man gets on the plane when they stop over in Edmonton. And no matter what Lowell said to him, this man was convinced that Justin Trudeau did the right thing because if he hadn't gone in there, there would have been a bigger fight. He saved the day, Rick. He <laughs> saved the day by manhandling Gord Brown and elbowing Ruth Ellen Brusso. Yeah. Well, that's not what the video shows, of course. <laughs> and uh, that's not what the uh, eyewitness MPs who were there recount. Or the speaker. That's not what the speaker said. Or the speaker. And I, you know, look, I mean, are we are we going to see a an immediate drop in support for Justin Trudeau and the liberals? No. But I think it's a mark of how serious uh, the liberals are taking this, that uh, that the prime minister was out there 
over the last few days apologizing by my count uh, a dozen times. Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> because this goes directly to their brand. I mean, they, the, the liberals have methodically tried to cultivate this new brand for, uh, for a once tarnished liberal party over the last few years. You know, and, and this brand revolves around doing things differently, uh, being uh, good listeners, uh, being more civil than Stephen Harper was. And, uh, and so what, what the prime minister did in the House of Commons uh, very much uh, undermines that whole image and, they've been trying to cultivate. And I've never seen Stephen Harper act like this. I've never seen Angry Tom, as he was dubbed, I think by me. I've never seen Angry Tom react like this. Yeah, Tom Mulcair can have a temper. So does Stephen Harper. But it was always behind the scenes. Tom's let his out now and again. But I've never seen him or any other politician in Canada behave that way, so incensed that they had to wait 46 seconds for people to start voting on their legislative agenda, that they decided it was okay to manhandle fellow MPs. Well, that's right. And the, and the context here is important. I mean, the, the Liberals, uh, all of this was revolving around uh, the assisted dying legislation and the Liberals trying to uh, uh, short-circuit process to ram that through. Uh, so tempers were already running high in the House of Commons. So you get the clear sense uh, from from what uh, what what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did that he just uh, he lost he just simply lost his temper. And uh, that's not something that uh, that Canadians like to see in a leader. And I, I uh, you know, I, I strongly suspect that when the House comes back into session in a week, you're going to see a much more contrite uh, Liberal Party. Well, let me ask you about this. I'm not sure, because the bigger context is that they were voting on closure on C-14, the assisted suicide bill. So they're voting on that. There are MPs on all sides that have issues with the bill. I mean, there's liberal MPs that have issues with the bill and say it needs to be amended. It will be struck down by the courts. It doesn't go far enough. It goes too far. And, and the liberals shut down all amendments from opposition. So there, there's new Democrats with good faith amendments that they say are trying to make the bill better, conservatives with the same they yep. they said no to all of that. They shut down debate, as as Peter Julian has said, faster and more often than the conservatives did. And then they also had that motion, uh, motion six, that would have changed the rules of the House of Commons so that it's it was only cabinet ministers and parliamentary secretaries that could end debate, that could uh, adjourn the House for the day, that would take all legislative tools away from the opposition parties. This, to me, does not say sunny ways. This does not say consultation. This does not say respect for parliament. This says, you'll do as I say, or I'll jump out of my seat and make you do it. I I think that's right. And, and, you know, time will tell whether this Elbowgate incident was the beginning of a change in the way that uh, Canadians uh, view this government uh, or whether it was a blip. I kind of think that... um, that you know the liberals have been in power in this country for two thirds of the last century for a reason. Uh, they enjoy power. They have no trouble wielding power, sometimes uh, as a blunt instrument. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think I think they're going to continue to do what they need to do to get their agenda through. And uh, you know, they're they're going to need to go about it in a much more subtle way uh, than they did last week. I want to ask you about the poll. We uh, spoke with Daryl uh, Bricker from Ipsos earlier. Interesting in that 52% of Canadians disagree with the statement that our electoral system runs fine and there's no need to make changes. I mean, 52% say, yeah, okay, let's make changes. 
But 73% say, well, if we're going to make changes, we have to have a referendum. I know you're not a fan of a referendum, but given the way that the government is operating, and you and I both think that they're going to shove through whatever makes uh, the liberals, um, does best for the liberals, isn't it worth putting it to a referendum, Rick? You Democrats say so in this poll. I'm not I'm not I'm not necessarily in favor of a referendum. What I am in favor of is a really good public consultation. And there's there's different ways of doing that. I mean, in British Columbia, as you know, uh, they they did a fantastic citizens assembly uh, that uh, that brought in you know people from all different political stripes. Uh, and so I, I think that the government still owes Canadians uh, an explanation of how it's going to consult on, on this uh, admittedly big change to our electoral system. Uh, we're still waiting for those details. The way the government has launched this electoral reform committee is uh, is not the best, to say the least, where they've uh, they've given themselves a majority. They've uh, reduced all the opposition parties to uh, to minority status. And, you know, getting back to the previous question we talked about, if the government's uh, serious about doing things differently, if the government's serious about moving to an electoral a new kind of electoral system that's more inclusive, surely the process leading to that electoral system itself well, should be inclusive. And and I well, I want to play a clip from Maryam Monsif, though, because yeah. it doesn't leave me uh, hopeful that we're going to see serious consultation, not when she stands in the House and says this. While the premise of the argument that my honorable colleague brings forward is false, I will go on to bring this forward. Yesterday, the first day that we brought forward the conversation on electoral reform, the hashtag electoral reform on Twitter alone garnered nearly 12 million impressions in one day. This is the 21st century way, and we will ensure that all voices who don't traditionally engage are included in this conversation. Yeah, you know, citing Twitter hashtags leaves me thinking she's not serious about this. Well, I am a fan of Twitter, as are you, uh, but... Uh, but it, I, it, it's I, not I, how I, you do serious public policy consultations. I'd agree that 140 <laughs> characters uh, isn't the kind of consultation that's going to be required. So I, I think the government has some ground to make up here big time. And uh, I hope when the House reconvenes in a week, a good place to start would be for the government to give up its majority on this Electoral Reform Committee and kick off a real consultation over the summer. You know, I, I will note, that, Brian, that that poll that you've cited has some other really interesting numbers, uh, 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 the biggest one being that, uh, that half of Canadians think that our electoral, uh, that our electoral system could, could uh, use some well, significant that, that, changes. That's what so I that, said. That, you know, they, that they, tells me there's a big appetite out there for change. They want the change, but they also want to have a say, a real say. And, uh, and I don't think so far Monsef and Trudeau are letting them have it. Rick, good talking as always. Thank you. Have a good day. Proof that a conservative and an unrepentant socialist can have civil conversations. Rick Smith from the Broadband Institute. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, I ain't no movie star, but I can get behind anything. Yeah, I can get behind anything. 
A little more tragically hip. As I said, we will have uh, an update at 11 o'clock, and we will endeavor to bring that to you live. Uh, Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, here on News Talk 580 CFRA. You want to join the conversation? It's 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Breaking, by the way, the Crown will not appeal Mike Duffy's acquittal. So they will not appeal. Let's go to Dave in, oh, sorry, David oh, yeah, in it's, Ottawa. It's, it's me, thank you. I didn't know I was going to be waiting for so long, but you always got good guests. Oh, Listen, uh, I wanted to comment uh, what Lowell talked about, uh, the, the feeling out west and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was reading Laurie Goldstein in the paper today in The Sun, and he was talking about the wastage of energy. Now, which brings it to Trudeau. He's over there in Japan. And he wants to encourage Japanese automakers and other industries, but primarily automakers, to come to Canada. Yeah. Which I would presume means primarily Ontario, if we're looking at the heavy industry, auto, auto industry, and others. That, that's where the supply chain is, so that's naturally where exactly. they would go to. They've tried to, they've tried to set up auto manufacturing in Quebec, and it's been a failure. Yeah. But so now let's go to Laurie Goldstein and the electricity thing. We're losing billions by selling surplus electricity, not only below cost, but below market. And he wants, and the cost of it is so high, he wants to get Japanese people to come over here and set up these industries. Not on your life. It's going to be a tough sell. The uh, Canadian who heads up Fiat in... um, which owns Chrysler now, has told Kathleen Wynne that her plans will kill the auto industry and she's got to back off. And she and her environment minister and finance minister, because part of it is the Ontario retirement uh, pension plan, they just keep saying, no, you'll deal with it. Well, no, eventually they they won't. They will set up up somewhere else. You get it. Uh, uh, There was a tweet sent out just a little while ago. Um, I I just wanted to, to point out to you, Dave. Uh, that um, Justin Trudeau's in Japan. He's standing beside uh, Japan's PM Abe, talking about the whole issue of Canadian support for Jap- uh, the Japanese position on China's expansion into the South China Sea. They're building all these little islands. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Trudeau did not say a word about the issue. Is it maybe because he doesn't want to insult his other favorite country? Of course. Now, so but can't we use all this surplus energy and give it at a use use all this extra energy we have that we're giving away and use that as an incentive? Keep that energy here in Ontario to support the auto industry. Now, now number it, two, it, o- they used to do that. He's over there. He wants to 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 push the, the sale of liquid natural gas to Japan. Well, now, they don't want pipelines. They don't want to use the deep water ports out west. How are they going to get that stuff there, by carrier pigeon? It might be. Don't give them ideas, David. Thanks for the call. Can I get one more thing? One more, quick. One more, very quick. Uh, elbow gate. I'm working on some new clothing lines. It's going to be a bubble wrap vest and helmet in case they ever happen to be on Parliament Hill and uh, meet the Prime Minister. Now, because you're a friend of mine, I'm going to make that available to you in case you're ever going to go to another uh, David Suzuki event. <laughs> Well, those guys know not to not to mess with me. Take care, <laughs> Thank bye. you. Let's go to Ian in Osgood. Ian, you're on Beyond the News. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Very well. Yourself? I'm sad. Uh, yeah, oh, sad. Over Gord Downey, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've known the band since uh, they began when they had 10 people in the crowd. And uh, I just wanted to put a, a little lightness on it. Uh, one of my 
good friends used to think that uh, 50 mission cap was a nifty fishing cap. <laughs> oh, misheard lyrics. No. Yeah. Now that's going to be stuck it's, in my head, Ian. Yeah, it, not, it, not it'll be like, like a, Reverend Blue Jeans by Neil Diamond. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I'm not trying to put light on, like I'm. I'm. Uh, oh no, you got. You, I, I, he he I, is I he has not died yet. He is still with us, and and will be getting a medical update soon. So, uh, I'll tell you uh, this: first time I remember hearing about the tragically hip, I was in high school. Would have been eighty six, eighty seven in that range, maybe eighty eight. I don't know. Memories become fuzzy. And uh, and someone passed on a fanzine to me. Now, this was before the days of the interweb, so uh, people would literally photocopy their fanzines and pass them around. And mine was honestly photocopied and stapled. Uh, and, and it was stories about this band out of Kingston. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I actually had a, uh, I, I had a small company in Toronto, and I had a guy that worked for me that uh, he did... Paul Langlois' uh, sister, and that's how I got to know the band. So I, okay. I, I've seen them like 30 times plus. Yeah, I, 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 I can't I, count, but it's been a lot. So yeah, it, and uh, it, uh, I, I don't want to put the the nail in the coffin or anything. I'm not trying to be too depressing, but uh, I'm, I'm just so, so, so sorry to, to hear. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully on this last tour, and uh, details are still to come. Hopefully, they do make it to Ottawa, and uh, we can all go out and see them. Thanks for the time. This comes, of course, just a little while after Spirit of the West had to shut down their touring because um, uh, one of their main members had uh, Alzheimer's. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in a few. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. All right, just moments ago, the news conference on Gord Downey being diagnosed with terminal cancer began at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Let's join that live. Unfortunately, though, even some of these so-called benign brain tumors can have devastating effects on patients. The situation is different. The word has a primary brain tumor. This is one that started from within the brain itself. It's not a cancer that is spread from another part of the body. And these primary brain tumors are infiltrated by nature. So they're impossible to remove completely by surgery. They frequently occur and they require other therapies such as radiation and chemotherapy treatment. They range in how aggressive they are, some that are fairly slow growing, others that are very aggressive and incurable. It's my difficult duty today to tell you that Gord Downey's brain tumor is incurable. It is one of the most aggressive forms of brain cancer called a glioblastoma. GPM for short, and it's one of the most common causes of cancer death in Canadians between the ages of 40 and 60 years old. At the Odette Cancer Centre, we treat 250 people a year with the same 
tumor as board, and I've been doing it for over 20 years at the center. Usually adults come to attention because of focal neurological symptoms, depending where the tumor is in the brain. Sometimes uh, these are seizures, sometimes these are neurological deficits like paralysis or weakness, and sometimes they can even be stroke-like in their nature. Gord developed his first symptoms in December of 2015. The first step in managing these beyond getting pictures like MRI scans of the brain is an operation. And at Sunnybrook, we're very grateful to Dr. Douglas Cook in Kingston, better known as DJ Cook, who is a friend of the band and an excellent neurosurgeon. And he performed Gord's, uh, Gord's surgery and excised the bulk of the brain tumor. After comprehensive examination of the tissue with uh, advanced scientific techniques, uh, our team assembled here at the Odette Cancer Center to discuss the most optimal treatment plan for Gord. We do this for every one of our new patients as part of a multidisciplinary case conference. Gord was given radiation treatment for six weeks. This consists of 30 treatments daily from Monday to Friday for six weeks combined with a chemotherapy medication. He completed that treatment a little more than a month ago. The most debilitating aspect of that treatment is fatigue, and he was tired. Some would say he was tired as, you know what? Um, and uh, he has improved since. Fortunately for Gord, um, he has a type of glioblastoma that is more amenable to treatment than most. Through research, we have learned of certain biomarkers or proteins on the surface of tumors that are associated with a more favorable re response to treatment and also confer a significantly higher chance of longer-term survival. And Gord has one of these proteins. I want to acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Arjun Sagal, who is the head of our tumor group at uh, the Odette Cancer Center and who gave Gord his radiation treatment. Gord's now continuing with ongoing chemotherapy in the form of maintenance chemotherapy, and in the last several weeks has rallied tremendously. In fact, last week he had a very important MRI scan of the brain that showed that all of the swelling in his head in the left temporal lobe area has decreased substantially, and the amount of tumor that we see residual has clearly shrunk, and he's doing very well. I was made aware through a series of conversations with Gord and the band and his management team that they had plans to tour this summer. All of my patients, of course, have trepidation about returning to their jobs, returning to their daily lives, wondering what the future holds. But you can imagine what a unique position I was in to give advice to one of the most iconic individuals in the country and a task such as a tour across the country. I was quickly impressed by Gord's resilience and courage to stay ahead of the news, and this is why the news release came out today. For many people, in fact, for most of my, my patients, it's daunting to actually reveal your diagnosis, not only to family, how do I tell my, my kids, how do I deal with this with my coworkers, let alone somebody that is truly um, a national treasure. The news today, while sad, also creates for us in brain tumor research an unprecedented opportunity. 
uh, to create awareness and to create an opportunity for fundraising, for research that's desperately needed to improve the odds for all people with this disease. Gord's courage in coming forward with his diagnosis will be a beacon for all patients with glioblastoma in Canada. They will see a survivor continuing with his craft despite its many challenges. The University of Toronto is amongst the world's greatest centers of excellence for brain tumor research, and we're committed and are leading in the quest for better therapies and improved quality of life and long-term survival for patients like Gord. Although the future can never be predicted with certainty, our team and I are confident that Gord and the band will dig deep and will complete the tour, and I don't anticipate any medical issues in the short term that would prevent the band from continuing with the tour plans, which will be shortly announced. Beyond today's medical update, there are no plans for ongoing medical communication about Gord's condition. He requests that we respect his privacy and allow the band and their music to do the talking. With that, I'll sit down and take questions. Right, so it's unfortunately not a curable tumor. Um, other, uh, other people have been, uh, other notable people have had this tumor. Um, recently, Ted Kennedy, um, Joe Biden's son. Um, so unfortunately, even with uh, the greatest connections and, and, and money, uh, there's no way to buy your way out of this. It's too early right now um, in Gord's trajectory to understand what his prognosis might be. Because when it comes down to individuals, we only have statistics, and statistics just don't tell the picture. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is uh, Beyond the News. You've been listening to Dr. James Perry give an update on the diagnosis of uh, Gord Downey from the tragically hip on his brain cancer today. It is, he says, incurable. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, things are going downhill imminently and says that uh, the band will be able to tour this summer. Talked about Joe Biden's son. Um, being one of the well-known people that has uh, dealt with this recently, Ted Kennedy, same kind of tumor, and about the, you know, it was interesting that he mentioned fundraising for research, uh, just like uh, Stuntman Stu here in this building, um, determined to say, what can we do? Now that I've got this, with this leukemia, what can we do to make things better for others? I'm sure we're going to see that with the hip. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll be back with more of your calls, more of your thoughts in moments. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. All right. Some good news and some bad news from Dr. James Perry in Toronto today on Gord Downey's tumor. He does say it's incurable. That's the bad news. Um, he does also say, though, that uh, Gord is responding well to treatment, uh, meaning that uh, he'll have a bit more time and, and thinks there will not be a problem within touring. We've been talking about all kinds of issues today. Uh, breaking news like this happens. We're going to go to it. But we started off talking about electoral reform and had Daryl Bricker on with his new poll showing that 73% of Canadians believe that there should be a referendum 
which means even a significant number of Canadians who think that we need to change the electoral system, because that's at 52% say, yeah, yeah, we're up for changing the system. A significant number of them say, sure, change the system, but we need a vote. Where do you stand on that? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Helen in Westboro, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, good morning. Yes, um, I agree. Uh, Well, first of all, I question the 52% that say that they want to make a change to the electoral system because I don't know what the question was. I might say I want a change to the electoral system, but it might be... Well, I'll read you the question. Thank you. Uh, And the question was, you, you had to agree or disagree with this statement. Canada's election system works fine as it is. There's no need to make major changes at the present time. 48% strongly or somewhat agreed with that, and 52% strongly or somewhat disagreed with that. Only 15% said they strongly disagreed with that, though. So if overall, 52% disagreed that we don't need to fit, change the electoral system at all. Well, some of the things about the electoral system, if I was asked that question, I'd wonder, is it about financing? Is it about how people are nominated? Uh, how the uh, uh, association, the writing association, can accept or reject nominations? That's, you know, that's electoral reform, too. Absolutely. So, you know, it, I'm not sure that it means that everybody, or 52%, think that uh, we should make some changes to the uh, electoral uh, system. Well, the heartening thing for me, Helen, is that 73% say don't change anything without a referendum. Absolutely. Now, I'm with you. I I think that um, I think the central parties and when I say central parties, I mean all of them have too much power. Mm -hmm. The the people at the center have too much power in terms of uh, being able to accept or reject candidates. And look, they they squeeze uh, David Birchie out in Ottawa Orleans. He'd run from the run for them before, did pretty well, wanted to run again, they wouldn't even let him uh, contest Andrew Leslie. I mean, they, they changed all the rules to help Andrew Leslie yeah, become and that's what the I guy be, out there. That's what I would be thinking of. So if the question was broken down into parts, what part needs to be changed, then I'd feel, yeah, 52% feel it needs to be changed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you would go for a referendum? Absolutely. All Just right. one other quick thing. Yep. I had a survey call uh, last week. And uh, after a few questions, I could see it was certainly from the Ontario Liberals. You could not believe the questions they asked. I was so mad. I didn't want to be mad at the poor guy that was asking the questions, but I asked them to call me because there was such a push-pull of uh, um, questions that they were asking, uh, the things yeah. they asked about uh, you know, Patrick li- Brown and uh, Ms. Wynn, uh, you know, about her experience. Give me a break. Yeah, she's got experience, but is it good? <laughs> The the push polls do exist. Legitimate pollsters don't do them. Uh, Ipsos would not do them. But I've caught campaigns, including during the PC leadership a few years ago, uh, one of the candidates was doing a push poll. Same sort of thing. Trash the other guy. That's the objective of a push poll. Thanks for the call, Helen. Thank you. Let's go to Ralph in Ottawa on the auto industry. Ralph, go. Yeah, I mean, mean, we should – we have a lot of hidden – uh, distorted subsidies that, that mean that we are creating a lot less jobs and the economy is a lot less efficient, and that's why so many manufacturing jobs have disappeared. Oh, hold on. Because we have subsidies, the jobs have disappeared? 
Um, well, things like raising the hydro prices. Uh, well, that's not a subsidy. That's a punishment for all of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we there's no need for that. Uh, but also, injured benefits went down. So some industries, and when you have an auto accident or a workplace injury, some in, some industries have low accident rates, like technology. So that industry will subsidize others with high accident rates, like uh, the meat industry, the trucking industry. Okay. have uh, given more subsidies to the trucks versus the trains because of the foreign labor program. And we should, large firms like trains because it's mass transportation. And so we should not have any hidden economic subsidies. And that would uh, attract large firms. Well, I, I would love to see us get out of the subsidy game altogether. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. The, yeah, politicians are... love subsidizing and politicians of all stripes love giving out checks. I think it's also uh, that we should be ending foreign aid, and, and that's uh, there's enough money in the South with all the military spending and, and arms spending that uh, it's more morally acceptable to end the aid and denounce the behavior there than it is to right. give them money for bad misconduct. That topic for another day. Thanks for the call, Ralph. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You want to join the conversation? Lots of phone lines open now. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Where do you stand on electoral reform? You poll. 73% say, let us vote. Go to letusvote.ca if you want to sign our petition. With Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Dealing, of course, today with the news of uh, Gord Downey, uh, frontman for the Tragically Hip, and maybe. Maybe the tragically hit are not your uh, cup of tea, but I'm going to keep playing the music because as, as a couple of people, uh, Daryl Bricker, Rick Smith, have said, kind of the the soundtrack of your life if you're of a certain age and uh, Canadian, and and that's just simply where things are at. And news conference just wrapping up, or I guess still going on CTV News, just breaking away from it now. The doctor saying that it's incurable, but the treatments are are better, uh, less swelling. And the bandmate saying, hey, if Gord feels he can go out there, then, yeah, they're doing a Canadian tour one last time. So, you know, everyone's going to be trying to get tickets. Kevin in Cornwall is calling in about electoral reform. Kevin, you're on Beyond the News. Thanks a lot. I just want to, first of all, I just say, Brian, that uh, my, my uh, wishes are with Gordy and, the, uh, and as a fellow musician as well uh, with the, uh, the band of the Tri- uh, Tragically Yep, because... Uh, I think it's wonderful if they do want to call out for cancer and they want to do some fundraising. I, I, my eye goes off to them for it. Uh, second thing, too, that we're coming back to electrical, uh, electoral reform. You know, Brian, the thing that bothers me about this Pacific poll is I'm wondering, what is the age bracket? Uh, uh, which because poll, sorry? With the polls and the, and the statistics, the, the, uh, the percentages that you gave me, I have to wonder, do we have, like, age brackets for this? Oh, yeah, it, it, uh, it is across the board that... Uh, Canadians want a referendum on this. Now, now, are you talking about what's the age bracket on need to make changes? Um, well, no, I, I'm, I'm wondering. You're saying right about right across the board, but uh, right across the board in Canadians, that's great. But I'm wondering, is there in the polls, in the polls, like what are 
what are the age brackets? Because the way I feel about it, I think if you're looking at it at a specifically younger age, their perception of what politics is today in vis-a-vis somebody who is maybe a little more knowledgeable as far as politics are concerned, and I'm certainly not one of them, let's be honest. But I would like to just say that the I just find today that the perception of the electoral system to the younger demographic or the younger the younger age, Brian, um, is getting a very very different perception. Okay, well, than what the reality is of how let, the electoral. Let, electoral let me give you those works. numbers. Let me give you those yep. numbers because one of the reasons that I love Ipsos is that when they release a poll, they don't just give you the headline numbers. They publish it by male and female age groups. High school, less than high school, post-secondary, university grad, all of that. And you can find all this on their website. So let's go with those that think they disagree that we don't need to make any changes, meaning you would assume they want to make some changes. So that's 52%. 50, 50% of men feel that way. 53% of women get into the age brackets. Of people 18 to 34, it's 48%. 35 to 54, it's 56%. In 55 plus, it's 50%. So the young people, less likely, according to this poll, to think we need to change the system. There you go. Okay. That's what I'm glad you clarified that. And when when you ask on the referendum question, um, let me just see. Sorry, I just need to scroll down. They put it in big charts. Uh, So... Seventy-three percent of eighteen to thirty-four-year-olds say no. Let's have a referendum, which is bang on what the national average is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's virtually no changes among those three age groups I just said: eighteen to thirty-four, seventy-three okay. percent say referendum; thirty-five to fifty-four, it's seventy-one, and fifty-five plus, it's seventy-four percent. Really, no difference between any of them statistically when when you're talking about those numbers. So, Perfect. it's uh, I, I always look for those as well, and normally I find. Um, University grads and high-income people uh, have the dumbest answers on every poll. Mm. So I I don't know why, but they vote liberal. Well, the thing, I don't want to get into who's voting what here, Brian. I'll keep that to myself. But I think the biggest thing that we need to do is, regardless of who you are as a Canadian, I think it's extremely important that you understand exactly how the electoral system works. And if you're asking my own personal opinion... I think there is some change that needs to be done, but in general, I think the electoral system does work. What kind of change, though? What kind well, of change would you like? I think there was a previous person that did say how the uh, how the people are selected. I think that's a very, very good point. Um, you know, if it's if within the intern, like if it's in within the internal, uh, whether it be progressive or progressive conservative party or the liberals or or. Um, the Green Party or NDP, regardless. I think that there should be a little bit of an open spectrum to allow not only females and males, but anybody who basically feels that they may be able to contribute to the electoral or to the political system. I think that's something that's very important. I think if somebody does go in, not necessarily the most knowledgeable, but the most experienced, but I think that does have at least a good grasp knowledge of, of the system and it is willing to make changes. I think that's what the political system, in my opinion, of course, is all about. I, is I, making different changes I, and making the proper decisions for Canadians for the future. I think the person that can ending. the person that can win the, the most vote should be able to get in there. Thanks for the call, Kevin. 
Let's go to, uh, I'm not sure, is it Jean or Jean? Jean. Jean. Jean, you're on yes, Beyond the yes. News. Yes. First of all, I'd like to say that um, in Alberta, we had the, uh, 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 for 20 years, we had a preferential ballot. We came to the conclusion, my husband and I, that it favored the, po- uh, the political currents at the time. If it was in favor of the government, the government profited. If it was against, they voted number <laughs> down, down the bottom of the list. Once that happened, the system was ended. Uh, secondly, I think the change that has to be made is to revert to the system that uh, Trudeau changed by himself in the 1970s, and that was that the uh, political parties had to approve of candidates. Yeah. And the trouble is, uh, that's a system everybody knows now, and uh, they, they go along with it. But well, I think that, cha- uh, that changed everything, that, that the constituency the, the preferential ballot in, in Alberta, and I think Manitoba had a similar change, yeah. where they were both discredited. Well, I, they were both something. discredited because they were set up to um, uh, help the party that brought well, those that, changes that's the, in. That, that's the point I made. If it favored the government... And power, uh, uh, if it went against them, the, the, the government, uh, the, 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 the electors would put them down the bottom of the list. And once that happened to social credit, they changed the system. I, I would but, say that um, if they bring in a ranked ballot, everyone will see that this is really what uh, it, just about helping Justin Trudeau and the Liberals win future I, elections. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. Once it goes against them, they'll be hit. It cuts two ways. But the main point I want to make is the change that has to be made, in my, in my opinion, is to revert to the system before Trudeau changed it. Changed in the 1970s. What, what well, was that? That, that he, he, he ruled that the, the party leaders had to approve of the candidates. Okay. Yeah, and that changed it. That meant that, that, that the, the, the candidates uh, and the MPs were beholden to the leader. And not to the electorate. Right. And that's and what we need. I agree. And, and that's what we need to get away from, Gene. We, we, ha- we have to get away from that. And, and it changed the constituency. I know the constituency organizations changed. They, didn't have, they weren't the same as they were before. Uh, I think at that point, my husband and I were left politics. And we, we just uh, uh, we got, we got fed up. So far as I'm concerned, they're all Marxist-Leninists. They, 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 they practice democratic centralism. Thanks for the call, um, Gene. Okay. All right. Let, let's go to Dave in Ottawa. Dave, you're on Beyond the News. Hi, Brian. Thanks. Um, just a comment on the electoral reform first. Um, I do think it's a ploy to ensure a liberal continuation of power. Um, but we are a liberal country. When you look at the percentage of people who vote liberal or NDP or green, it's by far the vast majority of people. So if we're respecting the will of the people, I'd rather have it gone through the Liberal Party than through some, you know, balance of power with the NDP who are just ranked socialists or even worse, the Greens. Really? Uh, you, you don't see Justin Trudeau's current Liberal incarnation or Kathleen Wynne's current Liberal incarnation as ranked socialists? This is not your father's <laughs> Liberal Party. They have both taken the Liberals further to the left. Well, that's a good point. Uh, I don't disagree with that. But um, and, and I disagree that Canada is a Liberal country. 
Well, I think that uh, if you look at the uh, the electoral results pretty much everywhere, by and large, even the conservative prime ministers that have been elected have been pretty liberal, like Brian Mulroney was very sort of liberal-minded conservative, and uh, Stephen Harper. <laughs> That's not what they said about him at the time. No, but uh, the things that he the things that he uh, that he did were were pretty much in keeping with uh, the liberal uh, changes brought in under previous governments like Trudeau. He didn't really do anything to to let's say reverse the trend and, and move he, to more conservative ideas. He brought in free trade, well, which that's a the liberal liberals, idea too. The, the, the liberals have opposed it for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, and and only once they, were they the got the party in, of free trade historically. But. Well, they were in 1911. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> they were in 1911, and then they weren't. Both parties have flipped on this issue. Yeah, but, so it's not. But when, a, but when, but when Mulroney was going up against the Liberals, they opposed free trade. Uh, they opposed the GST, which was a, a boon to federal government coffers and allowed for uh, reductions in. Uh, income taxes, just like Mulroney promised. And look, I am not a big fan of Brian Mulroney. I don't have a lot good to say about the man uh, as, as a man or as a politician, but he did some a lot of good things. Well, I think I think he was a very good prime minister. I think he was much better than the uh, prime they, minister they, we they, have now. This is a and myth I'm not th- against Mulroney. Uh, you know, even there, though there's I a think. myth out there that we are a uh, a liberal country. I, I don't I, think I, that's I, a myth, Brian. I I, I, th- I think it's a myth. No, I don't created. think so. Look at all the all the provincial governments right now are almost all liberal. Our and, federal, and a little while ago, a good chunk of them were conservatives. Federal liberal party is called the natural governing party, isn't it? Yeah. It's for but, a reason. You know, it, you it, know? it's a bit like uh, Michael Jackson naming himself the king of pop or the Rolling <laughs> Stones the greatest, calling themselves the greatest rock and roll band ever. You say it often enough and it sticks and people start saying it. Your thoughts on Elbowgate before we go? Okay, well, I think that uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, an arrogant little so-and-so, and and what he did is really, you know, way over the pale. I mean, beyond the pale, I mean, and, and, uh, you know, like all his apologies really don't matter. You can't undo something like that, and it will stick with him. You know, and whereas Rob Ford was more of a buffoon when he ran over uh, the councillor in in, uh, the city hall, you know, he wasn't acting out of some, you know, arrogant right to dictate the rules. <laughs> he he uh, wasn't Trude- he wasn't trying to force her to do what he wanted. Right. And in this case with uh with uh you know Mr. Justin Trudeau, it really demonstrates his arrogance and, and that's gonna stick with him because that is his basic attitude about everything. Right from, you know, his statement we're back and uh, all these other statements that he made that just uh you know, he does never reasons a thing out. He acts on instinct and on fad the guy's a disaster. Thanks for the call, Dave. Okay, thank I'm you. I'm Brian, Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Back after this. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. It's just music that is so instantly recognizable, at least to me. But then again, you've all figured out by now I am a big music fan. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, final moments for your calls. Let's get to them quick. Uh, Paul in Hunt Club calling in about electoral reform. Hi, it's um, a little bit confusing when people start talking about electoral reform, which is something the government has to deal with, and then they bring in political parties and how political parties private clubs select their 
candidates. And I wish people would keep them separate because it's, it's yes, it's about elections, but it's, it's two completely separate issues. Not really, Paul, because the, the some of these rules are written into our Elections Act. Right. But how we select our member of how we if, if, if we select our member of parliament and how we select that member of parliament is one thing. And I think that's what we should focus on. If you want to then focus on how the Green Party or the Wacky Tabaki Party selects their members, I don't that just confuses uh, to me. That just confuses the issue. No, I, I think the big problem in our electoral system is that. The, uh, the, the MPs, from the time they want to seek the nomination until the time they leave, are beholden not to the voters of their district, but to the party leader, because the Elections Act gives the party leader powers they should not have. Yes, yeah, and I, I, unfortunately, I, 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 not unfortunately, I disagree with you on that one. I think that the party needs to control, and it could be the party leader or whoever, but the party needs to control... Who will go forward and be their standard bearer and represent them in the riding? It shouldn't matter. Like, I, I, well, they, it's up to the members of that uh, EDA to make that decision. It's not up to the uh, the party brass. And all these changes that Justin Trudeau is proposing for his electoral reform only uh, consolidate that power. And that's my big problem with it. I want less power for the people at the center and more for the grassroots. So, so you're ta- are you talking about what... Trudeau's proposing for a changes to the Liberal Party Constitution nope. or the how we elect our members of Parliament? Uh, his proposals for how we change the elected members of Parliament will concentrate power even more in the hands of party officials and less so in the hands of the voters. Okay. Thanks for the call, I, Paul. Let's go to Pearl in Kempville quickly. Pearl, last word to you. Good morning, Lowell. Er, <laughs> Brian. Thank you. <laughs> anyway. I th- I th- I think it is a myth that uh, that the liberals are uh, what that they think everybody thinks that they you know, they should vote liberal because they've been led to believe that by the liberals by because the liberals and the media yes the liberals and the media they've been lying to the people since uh, I was a little girl about that they're running con- undermining the conservatives all the time and they sit back and that meanwhile the conservatives would come in and clean up their messes and they'd come back in the people would put them back in and they'd mess they'd blow our money again and like to me the the populace the people in canada are being led down the garden path to destruction financial destruction and the ruin and it's going to ruin this country. I agree with Kevin O'Leary. It's a disaster. And well, it has to be stopped. They're lying to people. They're two-faced lying hypocrites. I'm sorry to, we, to we, say we, they've been electing a party that does not have their interests at heart. They have their own self-interests at heart. Thanks for and, the... We, we got to run, Pearl. Thanks okay. for the call. Okay, we will be hearing more from Kevin O'Leary. Uh, apparently, we'll be speaking at the Conservative Party convention later this week. I'll be out there broadcasting live from the convention floor, although it'll be early in Vancouver, uh, on Friday morning. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, a heartbreaking story of a mother trying to get her children back after they were abducted by the father, taken to Iran. Allison Azer, standing by. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa.
The issue of child abduction is unfortunately far too often not something that happens with strangers. You walk into any store that uh, there's a lot of families in, you think of going to Walmart and they've got the sign on the front that talks about Code Adam. And when you've got really young kids, you are worried. You're constantly worried when you're out shopping about someone taking one of your kids. And that's what Code Adam's about. We now have the Amber Alert system across this country. And unfortunately, far too often when you hear about Amber Alerts, it's a parent taking the kids away. We had one recently. Ended up in uh, a car accident up near Petawawa. Well, in the case I want to talk to you about now, we're talking about four kids being taken away, and not to another city, not to another province, but to another country. Allison Azar has been trying to get her four kids back since last summer when her former husband took them to, it was supposed to be a trip to Europe. He ended up taking them to northern Iraq in the, the Kurdish area. They're now in Iran, and Canada has very little uh, ability to do anything at this point, as far as I can tell. Allison Azar uh, joins me on the line now. Allison, let's back up a little bit and, and fill us in. You you were married to um, Sayed Azar for how long? Uh, Sarn and I were married in uh, 2002, and we divorced in 2014. In, so in that time, you had four kids. Four incredible kids. Okay, so you got uh, two little boys and two little girls, is that correct? Yeah. How old are they? Well, they're all summer babies, Brian, so they'll have to maybe get used to adding a year onto the numbers that I give. But um, at the time they were abducted, my daughters were 11 and 9, and my sons were 7 and 3. Wow. And the last, when was the last time you saw them? I last saw them on August the 4th. Uh, I was dropping them off um, to the nanny, the woman who was court-ordered to chaperone the trip. Um, she seemed fairly agitated. She was trying to arrange what she said was the medical insurance. Um, given how she ended up corroborating um, with my ex-husband on the abduction, uh, who knows what she was doing. My Girls were were begging me in the car. They said, Mommy, we don't feel good about this trip. Especially my daughter, Rochefond. She didn't want to go. You had tried to stop the trip. And I, I know that often in um, joint custody or shared custody situations, parents are not allowed to take the kids out of the country without permission of the other parent. You didn't want them to go here. Why did your kids end up going on this trip? We had a really acrimonious um, and litigious uh, divorce. And there was one thing I could not compromise on, and that was international travel. So I ended up um, being assured that the passports would stay with me, that travel could not take place without my permission. And Saren played a long game and continued to dupe people along the way. Eventually, a court-ordered parenting coordinator um, was asked to meet with the children for the very first time. My daughters told her that they didn't trust their dad and, and didn't want to travel with him alone. But if the nanny went with them, they would agree. So this parenting coordinator, um, a lawyer by profession, she took a really big risk that I think she didn't have the right to take, and she recommended the trip. 
So at that point, your objections carried no weight. That's right, because um, a parent can disagree, but the courts can always override a parent. And in my case, that's what was happening. So your children, were they actually taken to Europe or was that always a ruse? They were taken to Europe um, for a trip over spring break last year, which was, now we know, just a preparatory trip um, for Soren to prove that he could do it and bring the kids back and for him to line some things up for the abduction plan for the summer. Um, so then, of course, having done what he said he would in the spring, he had no problem um, getting the children for the summer vacation, which, uh, as you said, was supposed to be a two-week trip to Europe, to France and Germany. And that's a two-week trip that they, they've they never returned from. What have you been trying to do? So this happened in August, right in the middle of an election campaign. So, which I I hate to bring politics into it, but you need the help of the government at this time to try and organize something to give you assistance. So are you, were you relying on bureaucrats? Were politicians involved? Uh, How, how did the response of the Canadian government happen or not? Sure. As you pointed out, at the time, in, in late August, people were pretty preoccupied. Um, I did my best to carry on um, and and really start fighting, as, you know, as, as I could with people that I could get to. So in September, I was in Ottawa. I ended up going to Kurdistan for the first time, met with officials there. By the end of October, I hadn't seen any progress. I went back to Kurdistan. I stayed there that time for three months. Were you able to track your former husband and the children down? Do you know where they were? By the middle of November, I knew exactly where they were. They were in a village called Maunan in PKK-held territory, the rebel-held territory of northeastern Iraq. Um, Sartre had taken the children there to stay with the very people that he told the Canadian government he had no affiliation with when he came to Canada and claimed refugee status. I the, the PKK are, um, I believe they were, if they're not still, labeled a terrorist group. They are on the list. Uh, it's called the listed entities. And, that, and, um, and yeah. so when, when your former husband came to Canada, claimed a refugee status, he said, no, no, I have nothing to do with those people. Now he's relying on their protection to keep you away from your children. Sure. It's it's uh, curious, to say the least. I found out by middle of November where the children were, and the Canadian government knew at least a month earlier where they were, um, hadn't shared that with me. I ended up hiring a driver um, it was the first Friday of December. It was very cold, and it started snowing. And we drove into the mountain mountainous area. We cleared seven checkpoints. They were armed checkpoints. And I got within a few hundred meters of where my children were. And nobody would let me see my kids. My heart's breaking for you right now, Allison. Um, They're no longer in Kurdistan, though, are they? No. So, um, Which, uh, if if getting into a war zone is difficult, (laughs) where they are now in Iran 
could prove even more difficult. So Sarin um, possibly overstayed his welcome um, with the PKK. Um, we don't know for sure, but he crossed with the children illegally into Iran, the country that he fled from in 1994 when he showed up on Canada's doorstep and said, I'm, I'm fleeing Iran, I'll be executed if I'm returned. And there he is, um, crossing the border with four little kids illegally. He goes to the village, the city, pardon me, it's, it's, it's about 250,000 people, a city of Mahabad, where he grew up. His mom is there and his brothers and sisters. And um, he, he starts to think that he can just lead a life. And he starts uh, trying to get work, and he's shocked and outraged when the Ministry of Health and the universities in Iran ask for his credentials. And of course, he's a wanted fugitive. There's a red notice for his arrest. And so... This is a red can't... notice issued by Interpol? Correct, because there is um, there are four counts of kidnapping uh, on his record. So we, we don't have this kid. We don't have diplomatic relations with Iran. That will soon change, but they haven't been established yet. Uh, I, I actually don't know if, if Iran cooperates with the likes of Interpol or, or, or does it depend on whether there's Canadians involved? How, how, is the, how has this changed your attempts to get your kids back and, and what is the government doing for you? So actually Iran has shown... <laughs> Quite, quite a willingness and a motivation to be helpful with, with this matter. Quite frankly, um, they don't seem to want Zarin either. He's, um, he's a Kurdish separatist. Um, he's had links with the Israeli foreign ministry. He's done many things over the years that um, actually put him in a fair bit of danger in Iran. And if he's in danger in Iran, um, I'm even more worried for my children. So the the onus is on our government, the Canadian government. They can and they must do more to engage the Iranian regime, which is willing. And there are channels of communication. You don't need formal diplomatic relations to pick up the phone. And in nine months, Prime Minister Trudeau has not picked up the phone for my kids. And I met with him last week, and I really appreciated his time. But now but you I need action. Him, why? Why in nine months? You're the leader of this country, and you're a father. Why haven't you done what you used to criticize Stephen Harper for not doing? And in fact, we know he did behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So... There, there was, there was Trudeau a... needs to pick up the phone to the Iranian President Rouhani and talk to him about the quickest and safest way to get my children back to Canada. There was a big outcry to get uh, Mohammed Fahmy released. Yeah. yeah. I think there needs to be a, a bigger outcry to get your children released, Alison. I'm speaking with Alison Azer, whose four children were abducted by her estranged husband, former husband, taken to Iraq for several months and now in, um, in Iran uh, and unfortunately not able to, to get them back. I, I, want to, um, I want to ask you, I know you've got an event coming up in Ottawa on June 8th. 
to raise awareness of this. And you're going to have uh, Amanda Lindout, who was uh, a Canadian who was captured, held for a long time. Is she going to come out and speak at it? Amanda has been an incredible supporter, both her and her mom. And uh, she did three similar events in Alberta a couple of weeks ago. They all sold out within days. And she's agreed to do an event for the Azure kids, my kids, in Ottawa on June the 8th. And tickets are still available. It's an incredible evening to hear her story. And I'll be there. I'll share some updates um, and, and some insights into what I've experienced in the last nine months. And okay. it really, really means a lot to me and my family. Let's touch to base when you're let's touch base when you're in town, but where can people find out more about this event now? Thank you. The website is findazurkidsnow.com. And uh, on the website are tickets to the event and also um, a petition called Make the Call for Prime Minister Trudeau to pick up the phone and call the Iranian president about my children. All right. Thank, thank, thank you for sharing your story with, uh, with me, Allison. It's, it's heartbreaking, and I wish you and your kids all the best, and hopefully something changes soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for your time. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Uh, back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. All right. Two hundred and eighty-four days. Your children have been abducted, and you still don't know when you'll see them again. I, I don't know about you, but that was a heartbreaking interview for for me to do with uh, Allison Azer. Just on our website now, it's findazerkidsnow.com. Findazerkidsnow.com, and of course, Azer is A Z E R. As soon as I have information on the uh, the event that will take place in Ottawa. I'll make sure I share it on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you're able to come out and uh, in support, then then please do. I know this uh, this audience is amazing. Hopefully, we can do what we can to to put pressure on the government to act, because at this point, it really is up to them. When we come back, it's time to talk about uh, Briere and technology, it, virtual reality, actually being used in rehabilitation. Is this just more Candy Crush? We'll find out. Stick around. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So have you texted Briere to 45678 yet? Because if you haven't, you should. And if you don't know how to do that, maybe find a 12-year-old and uh, get them to teach you how to do that. It, you text the word Briere to 45678, and that will make a donation. Why am I talking to you about this? Because this Thursday, the Briere Cares Radiothon happening right here on News Talk 580 CFRA. Been a proud partner with Briere for years, and I've been learning so much through these segments over the last little while. Like so many people in the community... Maybe you just associated Briere with palliative care because, you know, we all deal with a loved one that, that dies or a friend that dies and you end up visiting them there. And that is such a small part. It's a very important part of what Briere does. But it's a small part. 
Heidi Sveistrup is a, an investigator at Breer Research Institute. She's a member of the Breer Research Institute Board of Directors and a professor at the Faculty of Health Sciences at U of O. And she's with me in studio now to talk about one of the incredible things that your donations help accomplish, and that is using virtual reality in uh, rehabilitation, whether we're talking about stroke or other areas, including it, cerebral palsy, correct? Right. So we've used uh, our virtual environments for rehabilitation with kids, but at Briere we're doing most of the work with our stroke patients, both inpatient and we'll be starting some outpatient work in the near future, we're hoping. All right. So could you just lean in just a sure. little bit? Okay, perfect. Now, Briere is actually the region's largest um, inpatient rehabilitation site. That's right, for stroke. That's right. I, that, that surprises me. Yeah, it is. It's a standalone unit, and so they take a, a lot of uh, individuals who are coming out of acute care from the civic, from the general. Um, people come up from Cornwall, um, Queens by Carleton. Many people who need inpatient stroke, they'll come to Briere for their inpatient stroke rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. They're there for about a month, give or take, depending on how, how impaired they are. Um, and we've added our research projects on top of the work that the therapists and the nurses are already doing. So given that it's a stroke unit, it focuses specifically on uh, patients with stroke. So they have all the best evidence. They're doing best practice. They have they follow all the guidelines for intensity, how many times a day do you or how many hours a day do you need to do rehabilitation, how many hours do you need to do during the week with a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist, speech pathologist. And then we add our projects on top of that to see if we can actually look at additional changes because of our interventions. This, this is the virtual reality right. formulate. Okay, right. so when Dr. Knufo was in, I was teasing him <clears throat> that he has people play Candy Crush on an iPad, and he said, not too far off. So do you hook people up to the Matrix? Uh, <laughs> do you, are, are, are they playing Wii games, Wii Tennis or something? What? Something very similar. So we use Connect Camera, and it's uh, actually a commercial company that is uh, out of Montreal, and we are working specifically on upper extremity function. So individuals who might have a bit of an arm problem, they can't reach for their coffee cup, for example. They can't reach out and shake someone's hand, so they have some upper extremity problem, or they have problems with balance and standing and walking. And so we're working on all of those different domains to try to see if we can use the gaming systems because they're very motivating, and you know this. You've seen kids playing Kinect for hours, or they're playing with their, you know, all their virtual environment. Kids trying gaming. to beat me. I mean, they're not so much. They've gotten older, so they're not so much into the Wii anymore. But I mean, that was the first big gaming exactly. system that had this movement aspect, and they wanted to beat me in everything from golf to boxing to whatever, and they would be active. That's right, and so that's the sort of thing that we're doing. But we're taking advantage of the fact that. We have some evidence to suggest what types of movements are going to be the best ones for recovery. Um, so we can actually ge- set up the systems or set up the games so that we generate or we have the patients working on specific tasks, um, very much like a physio. So it's not just sort of throw your arms around to play a Wii game, but it's really focused activity um, addressing the specific movements that we want them to work on. Now, I'm, I'm told that this helps with neuroplasticity. That's right. Which you're going to have to explain what that means to me because I, I purposely skipped out on biology class. So the idea <laughs> is that um, when you have a stroke, you damage a certain part of your brain. And so in that early, early period, there's a lot of sort of new uh, neurological you know, development happening. 
And so it's to try to take advantage of that and make it functional, but also at the same time use restructure sort of where the brain, what signals are passing through the brain and what networks are happening um, and being recreated so that we can actually generate the movement. So it's the whole idea that your brain is quite plastic. As we learn, as anybody learns, the brain um, neurons connect differently and they talk to different neurons and you create different networks. Um, And that's what we're trying to take advantage of. So we have other studies where we're looking at EEG you know, the brain signals, and Mm -hmm. we can actually map what neuron areas are talking to what other neuron areas. And then as we train, we can record and see how those connections or those pathways change to try to get a sense of network mapping and Uh, and uh, changes. Okay, so to to help a simple man figure this out, (laughs) you're doing, uh, no, this is fascinating to me. And like I said, I skipped out on biology class on purpose. So you will have people connected to these uh, virtual reality systems, and, and you can monitor how their brain activity changes from when they're sitting still to when they're on that so that it, it helps you adapt and change and say, okay, well, when Joe is doing this, it helps with that and, and adjust in this way. Sort of. It's not that um, simple. and They're not that connected. So a lot of our gaming systems, we're playing and we do a lot of clinical measures. So we're actually measuring function. Um, the ones where we're actually hooking people up to look at networks, um, they'll play some of the virtual reality activity, but it's much more uh, quiet and maybe just uh, a hand movement. Whereas what we're doing when we're working at Briere currently, it's much more walking, stepping, leaning, reaching. So they're much larger movements and we don't hook them up to anything. They're just, it's actually playing very similar to what you would play at home in the Connect. Okay. So a little uh, bit of the connect work. Speaking with Heidi uh, Sveistrup, she is uh, an investigator at the Breer Research Institute and a professor at the U of O, uh, bringing some, uh, I guess, research into the areas of rehabilitation down at Breer. This fascinates me is that the brain, it, a damaged brain from a stroke can repair itself to a degree, even if that section of the brain that was damaged, different parts of the brain take over. I right. guess that's what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, we might damage a part of the brain that would have normally dealt with a specific function, but we can, through rehabilitation, fix our brain by having other portions take over. Right, and that's what we're trying to facilitate. So a lot of that is what people might call compensation, but we also want to do some recovery. So the idea is, or restitution. So can we have um, you know similar areas taking over or different areas taking over a function, or can we have uh, new new neurons taking over similar, the tasks that were damaged from, uh, from the stroke. Okay. That's right. This is fascinating stuff, and it is a type of work that your donations can help. So uh, you can donate right now. The text line's already open. You just have to text BRIERE, that's B-R-U-Y-E-R-E, to 45678. BRIERE to 45678 to make a donation. That'll show up on your phone bill. Of course, you can also donate with uh, a phone call. On Thursday, we'll have people standing by to take your call and make a donation. And I'm just going to put in my own plug right here. Uh, If you can, make it a monthly recurring one. It's like like a subscription. Make a monthly recurring donation. Could be 10 bucks, could be 25 bucks, whatever you can afford. You know your budget. But philanthropy in the community is what helps keep the city going and helps us get the the healthcare system 
that we need rather than the bare bones that the system will provide. So your help can go a long way. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, well, we'll get into more on electoral reform. Yep, we'll, we'll go back to politics. Don't worry. More in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Coming up at 1 o'clock, you're going to talk about the Raptors last night doing incredible work to uh, win a second game. We'll talk to Dave Tripp from 3 in the Key. He's also the guy behind the board right now. I, I swear that he said on Friday there's no way the Raptors would win, and of course they did. But we'll go to the tape. We'll find out what really happened. Earlier today, I spoke with Daryl Bricker, and I want to bring this back. I want to replay part of what my discussion was with Daryl because you're not going. there's not enough coming out on this. The poll was released on the Friday of a long weekend, unfortunately. Uh, but it shows what I've been saying, what you've been saying for such a long time, that the majority of Canadians want a referendum before we change our voting system. 73%. Here's my chat with Daryl Bricker. Hey, how are you, Brian? I'm well. Before we get to the poll results, a bit of a a shocking news for uh, those of us of a certain age at uh, Gord Downey and uh, in brain cancer today. I'm sure you've uh, enjoyed the odd hips uh, track or two over the years. Yeah, I saw them many times live, and you you really haven't experienced it unless you saw them live. Actually, I remember one time I saw them just as their first album was coming out, because their first manager was actually another pollster, Alan Gregg. Oh! Uh, from Decima. And Alan phoned me when he came into town and said, hey, you really got to come and see these guys. I've got this new band called The Tragically Hip. So I went with him to Barrymore's. Uh, <laughs> and, and saw in Ottawa. Band. Yeah, in Ottawa on Bank Street. And it was stunning. I mean, I the amount of energy, uh, the just the, the freshness and everything about this band. It was this Canadian band from Kingston that nobody had heard of. And Alan said, these guys are going to be huge. And he was absolutely right. And uh, when I woke up this morning and, and heard that news, it was obviously a, a big shock because uh, he's uh, somebody that I remember, you know, for over a period of, you know, over probably 25 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, their influence on Canadian music. I mean, how many uh, bands do you know that basically have a career that's Canadian-based and can come to town and sell out the Air Canada Center. Uh, there's not many. And no. uh, I heard Bill Carroll trying to um, uh, find the right, you know, because Gord Downey's such a great uh, songwriter and lyricist, trying to say, well, who's he like? And he was searching. It came to mind for me right away, Stan Rogers, because he sings about the country. You can go to every part of the country, and the Tragically Hip have written a love song, essentially, to yeah, wherever you he's are. Also, he's also very generous to Canadian music. I mean, I saw him... Actually, not last summer, but the summer before it, some obscure little folk festival just outside of Hamilton, Ontario, playing with the Sadies. And uh, he was like, he, he could have been playing the ACC. He was that into it and, you know, little crowd, but he was uh, he was just as amazing playing with him as, as he was with the hip. Well, let's ask about your poll uh, now and get down to business. I, I, could talk about, I could talk about music all day, Daryl. You and I could probably talk about anything for uh, for yeah. hours. We probably have. Uh, but 73%, that is more than uh, I think a lot of people thought. It's similar to a poll that, that we did at the Rebel a little while ago. 
and it cuts across those who don't want any change and those who do. Explain that. Yeah, well, I think what's uh, what's interesting here is not so much what the outcome is as the process. And that's where the governments really ended up in a bit of a quandary. Because if you do ask the public about uh, whether or not the election system could be better, it's one of those things where they say, well, it can always be better. So at least half of the public says, you know what, maybe we could do some reform. But when you get into the process of reform and what it's going to require, people on something that's fundamental really do feel that a referendum is the best way to gain public approval. So the government may have some great ideas. Uh, the public's not really aware of you know, exactly what the reform is that they would plan, but they, they certainly have a pretty strong view about what the process should be. And they find it hard to accept a fundamental reform that doesn't somehow go to the public. Does this go across uh, age ranges? I, I looked geographically, yeah, universe, and it, it majority, went across. Majorities everywhere. Okay, so... Everywhere it, and among everyone. Because sometimes, especially with liberal policies, you'll find that um, there's a big shift between 18 to 34-year-olds and everybody else, but not in this one. No, and, 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 and it's not a surprise for 18 to 34-year-olds because they do believe more in kind of consultation and, and, and particularly direct consultation. Uh, but uh, the, the, the only group that's more divided on this are the people who are liberal supporters who are more prepared to take on faith what the, what the government said. But they only got 39% support, 39.5% support in the last election. So it's the other uh, 60, uh, you know, 1% that they have to somehow convince that this is a good idea. Yeah, they got 39% of the 68% of people that voted. So it's far from a majority that, uh, that gives them this mandate. Uh, right. And, and it's not to say that they can't build a case where they say, look, a referendum is not essential, that, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got these other ways of consulting with the public that we think are, you know, fairer, and she's making, uh, the minister's making some arguments about this. Uh, and it's not to say that people can't come on side with that, but where they're starting at right now is they really need to be convinced that a referendum isn't essential. Well, it's, uh, I would say that's an uphill battle for her to convince Canadians, considering that they've been at this since December, trying to say we don't need to go to a referendum. And her answers are only getting weaker. When you start citing Twitter hashtags as consultations, I, I think a lot of Canadians, regardless of partisan stripe, are going to roll their eyes. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not a story that's, uh, that's, uh, that's particularly compelling right now that uh, Canadians are being told about this. And the other part of this, Brian, is that when you look at all the issues confronting the country today, you know, if I go out and ask people what's the most important issue confronting the country today, this one doesn't come up in the top 20. So, you know, it's sort of like, why are we talking about this? And why do you want to change it? And you want to do it without really, um, uh, you know, explaining it to me in a way that I can uh, accept that it's just okay for you to go ahead with this. So I need to be able to have a vote in order to actually endorse what the decision, what the decision is going to be. So, um, uh, yeah, uphill battle, I think, is the best way to describe it. All right, Daryl Bricker from Ipsos. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks. A little bit of my conversation with Daryl Bricker. Sorry, I was making jokes with uh, with Christian. He's delivering my coffee. That was my conversation with Daryl Bricker earlier on. When we come back, we're going to talk to the Raptors. Am I going to prove Dave wrong? Did he really say the Raptors are going to lose, or is he going to prove me wrong? We'll go to the tape. And I got some news for you about Justin Trudeau and his honeymoon day off in Japan on your dime. 
Yeah, news you won't hear anywhere else. I'm B-Lil. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. The Toronto Raptors did what nobody thought they would do yesterday, and that is pull off a second win. They are, of course, in the Eastern Conference Final. And, yeah, we talk sports a little bit here now and then. Wait until football season starts. Wait until that is going on. But I've been getting into the Raptors, and I've been telling people my uh, my youngest boys just suddenly discovered basketball and is all excited about it. So last Friday, when the Raptors were down 2 nothing. I brought in a couple of guys who claim they know basketball. Elias Elzane, who's not here to defend himself. And, He's got nothing to defend. And, and, and Dave Tripp. Dave, Dave opts the board for most of the morning on the show. And, and they're, all, they're two of the three members of Three in the Key podcast. Dave is here because, uh, you know, I walked away from that thinking you and uh, Elias were basically saying Raptors have no shot of doing anything. Well, I, I remember things a little differently, I think. Uh I was pretty pumped on the Raptors in Game 3. I thought that for sure they'd be able to pull one out. And uh, I think if we go to the tape, uh, we may clarify things a little bit. You know what? I hope they can. I'm going to say they will take Game 3, but I think it'll be very tight. I think the Raptors will actually get scoring. Kyle Lowry typically doesn't sit down for two games in a row. He has. I mean, Game 3 has to be the game he comes back. I bet he puts up 30 points. We got Elias in Game 6 and Game 7. Elias? Uh, No, I, I don't see it. I think Cleveland is just too good. Cleveland wins, and then they close it out in the ACC on Monday night. All right. Uh, so, uh, fine. My apologies, Dave. The yeah. Raptors did it. You know what? I was wrong, though. It took Kyle Lowry an extra game to get to 30, which he did last night. Last night, he and uh, De- um, DeMar, DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan both put up. North of 30, right? Combined for 67 points, which is like, just about exactly yeah, what the so Raptors need to beat anybody. Uh, 35 and 32, respectively. Exactly right. Uh, that was a nail-biter of a game. So, you know, I, I went out for a run last night. They're ahead by a few points. Okay, this is going to be good. I'll, I'll, I'll get back for the end. They were up about 16 points, 12 points when I got back in. And then all of a sudden, the Cavaliers came back and were ahead for a little bit. Yeah, three-pointers were killing them late in the game. Yeah, J.R. Smith was hitting them back-to-back early in the third, or late in the third quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, well, they, yeah, the Channing end, Fry hitting back-to-back threes as well. End of the third quarter, the Raptors uh, ended the way they'd ended the first two quarters with a lead. But the comeback but had just begun. The, the fourth quarter, it was all, 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 all the Cleveland Cavaliers. Until the very end. When you saw Cleveland start to miss those shots, the defense was really strong. And, of course, Kyle Lowry was playing like he played some of the best basketball he had all season. This is a first-time All-Star, or second-time All-Star in Kyle Lowry, first-time first-team All-Star, and just a talented guy who's able to come out and become the, the team leader when they need him most. And he's struggled a lot this series. And for him to come out and shoot four for seven from three-point range, that's gigantic. But I, I think that you, you have to say that with how strong Cleveland was with their comeback in the fourth quarter and being shut down like that, that really it was down to the defense in the end. Absolutely. That did it. Uh, I mean, look, you can uh, 
you can run up the score all you want. If your defense disappears and Cleveland's able to come back three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer and close the gap, if your defense doesn't show up, then you're going down. Well, I think Coach Dwayne Casey deserves a lot of credit because after the first two games, you know it, I know it, everybody was writing off the Raptors. It was going to be a four-game series. Listen it, to Elias. I mean... Uh, well, let's <laughs> let's listen to Dwayne Casey, who said nobody gave them a chance. Nobody gives us a snowball chance, and you know where, to, to beat Cleveland. But uh, we just got to keep on churning, keep on working, keep on grinding. Okay, so it's now a best-of-three series. Uh, the next game's tomorrow night? That's right. Tomorrow night in, in Cleveland. Cleveland. And then game five will be Friday night in back, Toronto. Back at the ACC. So far, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I forget Cleveland's coach's name. Uh, Tyron Liu. Tyron Liu. He's doing the post-game presser yesterday, and he's asked, like, what is it? Yeah, the first two games in Cleveland, they beat the Raptors like they were a stuffed doll. A stuffed, uh, doll. And then that pretty much turned around and, and happened here. And he was asked by one of the Cleveland media traveling with the team, what's going on? It's a bit of a weird series. And he just said, I don't know. He he did credit part of it in both cities to great hometown fans Absolutely. giving the teams a boost. So do you think that they can beat the hometown fans going into Cleveland? I think that they can. You know, I think Tyron Liu, he's a brand new coach in the NBA, former player. He got brought in halfway through the season. And everybody's saying Tyron Liu's a genius. They've won 10 in a row in the playoffs. And now all of a sudden you're starting to see some cracks in his philosophies. Dwayne Casey is the season coach in this playoff series. And down to a three-game series in the regular season, the Raptors won that series. So can they win two games in this series? Absolutely. I have no doubt that they can. Is it a, is it a lock? Absolutely not. The Cleveland Cavaliers are a great team. you got to stop LeBron James, but they're off to a heck of a start Well, did they now. stop LeBron last night? Uh, I wouldn't say stopping LeBron's the philosophy. You can't stop LeBron. He's the best player in the world. Yeah. What you can do is you can take out some of those outside factors. Maybe, you know, go after a, a banged-up by Kyrie Irving. Try to stop Kevin Love's outside shooting, and that's what they did. In the end, the Raptors shot just about the same from the three-point line as the Cavs did. That's the first time they've done that this this playoff. Early on yesterday, there were complaints earlier in the game. I was following this part on Twitter. People saying, come on, it's been a whole quarter, not a single foul against the, the, the Cavs? Was there a problem with the refing? I mean, normally when people are complaining about the refing, it's, oh, well, the away team is getting screwed by the refs. What did you think? Well, this isn't new in Game 4. Dwayne Casey got fined after Game 3, $25,000 for calling out the refs in this series. Where There's a certain belief that superstars are treated differently than Canadian superstars. Let's be Toronto has superstars. DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, these guys are absolute all-stars. In any other market, they'd be treated like heroes. But in the American media seems to paint them as, oh, they're underdogs, they're not that good. LeBron James is a superstar. There's no question. Mm -hmm. And that guy doesn't seem... He seems to get favorable uh, judgment from the refs. And maybe I'll get fined for saying that on CFRA right now. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think they have anything, uh, uh, you know, over you. So I, I think, think you're fine. I think Dwayne Casey was trying to get the refs to realize that, hey, this is actually happening. It didn't seem to make a big impact in the first half. But, uh, you know, the fouls eventually started to go their way in the second half of the well, game. He, and hopefully he, he, in Cleveland you'll see a difference. I mean, towards the end, the, the Raptors were going to the line quite a bit, and, and that definitely helped with the win. 105 to 99. That's only six points. A few of those had to come down for the um, oh, yeah. <laughs> to the free throws. Although, I don't know what was going on. Uh, they'd get the free throw. They'd sink the first one, miss the second. You know what, though? This is the first game of the series that the Raptors have scored 100 points. 
So hopefully this is a trend. Hopefully they're turning <laughs> over a new leaf. They're going to start pumping out 100 every game because you need to put up points to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're just so good. Right. You mentioned that uh, Lowry and DeRozan, that they are they're given short shrift in the American media. Uh, obviously, LeBron is even doesn't matter who they're playing. The Cavaliers. LeBron is still the big name. He's the biggest name in the NBA, for yes. sure. So do you think that whether it's the refs or head office or the media, that there's this desire to make sure by whatever means that the Cavaliers and not the Raptors are in the finals? I da, da, uh, I don't think it's the league. I think the media, you can see it. Just watch after every game, like, oh, are the Raptors legitimate now? Well, they just tied the best team in the East. Of course they're legitimate. It's a three-game series. Both teams have an equal chance at this. But as far as the American media is concerned, the Raptors are done. This is two anomalies back-to-back. And LeBron's just going to go off next game, and away you go. It'll be ancient history. That's the last we hear of the Raptors till the fall. I don't think that's going to happen. You, you might know, <laughs> but you you would know this better than I would, but do you know it? That's the question. The Blue Jays in the World Series last year, did that hurt ratings on TV? I don't think so. I think that, that the bat flip game is probably the biggest baseball game in as long as I can remember, probably for a Canadian since Joe Carter hit his home run. In the American yeah. media, that was still a big deal. Like, I mean, look at the reaction. But does it kill ratings for the American networks? Never. Something like that, like a big moment. Even if even if this game goes, if this series goes to seven and the Raptors win it and it's a great game, it won't matter. People will get behind the Raptors, even in the United States, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, but but then then you've got the final. There's and, a lot of people and, that hate LeBron, too, right? So <laughs> well, This is true. Outside of Cleveland, there's a lot. Now, I'm just wondering if come the final, then maybe the Americans are like, who are these Canadians playing basketball? Well, they'll find out. I think uh, either way, Oklahoma City and uh, Golden State's been very tight as well. A lot tighter than a lot of people thought. So we could um, have two surprise teams in the final. You just mentioned Golden State. So if the Raptors are able to get by the Cavaliers, then they got to go up against the team that just set a record for winning this year. Yeah, and uh, beat them <sighs> both times they faced them in the regular season this year. I don't like uh, I don't like that matchup for the Raptors. I prefer the Oklahoma City Thunder as a matchup because that's a team they can really game plan against. Well, we'll see what happens, Uh, but uh, my apologies to Dave Tripp. Uh, He was not as negative about the Raptors last Friday. We'll check in with you later on. Thank you very much. Back to your hovel now. Go push some buttons, will you? Happy birthday. First official birthday to my niece, Lorelai Tripp, born about two hours ago to my brother Dan and his wife, Rebecca. He's been glowing. So there's a name now. The last time I talked to you, there was no name. That's right. Lorelai. Lorelai. Okay. He's been glowing since he got the news that he's an uncle again. So shout out to Lorelai. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Stick around. More to come. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Special music intros there. Thanks to the guys in production, uh, Rob Mortimer, Barry Hayes, for turning that around so quickly today. Getting the news, waking up to the news from Bill Carroll. Uh, speaking with Dr. Barry Dworkin about the inoperable tumor that Gord Downley, the front man for the Tragically Hip, is dealing with. Now, is doctor, you, we carried it live earlier on News Talk 580 CFRA, his doctor says that, yep, he is, the tumor is and the cancer are incurable, but they're treatable, meaning he'll have time. He'll have a, a certain quality of life for the next little while. And the band will announce the dates for their Canadian tour tomorrow, I'm told. 
mentioned this earlier, and I've been speaking with the Tragically Hip back and forth with different people. I should have asked Trip about it, but um, despite being a young guy, he loves loves music, uh, but including the hip. But honestly, the first time I remember hearing about the Tragically Hip, I was in high school back at St. Jean de Brebeuf in Hamilton, Ontario, and someone handed me a fanzine. The days before the interwebs, you didn't set up a, a fan page on a website because websites simply didn't exist for the general public. People would publish their own little fan magazines, and then people would photocopy them and share them around. And so somebody's like, here, you've got to check this out. You need to check out this band. I'm not even sure if their first album was out yet. But it was about the Tragically Hip and a few other bands. But I remember reading about the Tragically Hip, and I said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Next thing I was you know, seeing their videos on Much Music, hearing them on the radio. Couldn't tell you how many times I've seen them perform live. Because I just used to go to an awful lot of summer festivals. But I've seen them in small venues and large venues. And they are an incredible act to watch. They're an incredible act to, to go and see. So I'm personally, I'm looking forward to seeing them at least one last time. I, uh, I think that whether it's Blues Fest or somewhere else, they have to come to Ottawa. They have to come to Ottawa and, uh, in, and play one last time. I'm just trying to look up. His name is escaping me for some reason. Spirit of the West is another, uh, another Canadian band, never quite as big as the, the Tragically Hip. But you would know their songs, Home for a Rest, uh, uh, Among Them, Political. We played that a few weeks ago because John Mann, who was the front man, he's battling early onset Alzheimer's, can't remember the the music anymore, can't remember the lyrics, about the same age as Gord Downey. They did their farewell. They just did a, a two- or three-night stint at the theater that was really their launch pad in Vancouver. Friend and I... We're pricing, once we heard about it, but we heard about it too late, like a day or so before, we were pricing airfare to figure out could we make it and was it uh, feasible. Unfortunately, with plane tickets being more than $1,000, no, not feasible at all. When we come back, I'm going to have some news for you about Justin Trudeau and his trip to Japan that will likely infuriate you. News that, will, will you hear about it elsewhere? I'm not sure, but we'll bring you details on that. Just before we go out, though, uh, CTV News Channel just reporting moments ago that there's a new poll out. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump tied. Tied. In several swing states, Donald Trump now leading Hillary Clinton. Mark my words. This guy is going to win. Salon. Left Wing Online News Magazine that's been around forever as far as online goes. They're saying Trump is going to win. Not my choice for Republican nominee, but I tell you, he will win. Let's play out with a little bit of Tragically Hip when we come back. Some Trudeau news to make your blood boil. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News.
be said that I never say good things about Justin Trudeau and the liberals. When news broke of Gord Downey, uh, front man for the tragically hip dealing with brain cancer and that the band's doing one last tour, Justin Trudeau sent out a nice tweet uh, about, um, about Downey's artistry, but set it off with hashtag courage. Good for him. Right thing to do. Sets a nice tone. And it, look, I, we all know it's not Justin Trudeau running his own Twitter account, but it's still nice that that sort of thing goes out from the prime minister. I think Barack Obama has done a, a good job at, at trying to have leaders connect with things that matter in people's lives. And Canadian politicians are slowly starting to figure out this is a good thing and they're emulating it. So there, I've said something nice about Justin Trudeau. Now, let's talk about his visit to Japan. Maybe you've heard he is in Japan. They've actually, because of the time difference, I've already got a release. It's from earlier this morning. They have rele- uh, put out a news release saying that Justin Trudeau's trip to Japan, his official working visit to Japan, is over. Hmm. He met with the Japanese prime minister. He met with auto executives. He met with others. But wait a minute. He's there for a while. And the G7 summit is on Thursday and Friday. So why is his official visit over and what's going on? Well, it turns out that while Justin Trudeau is in Japan, he's taking tomorrow off. He's not holding any meetings or events tomorrow. He's just having a day off with his wife to celebrate his 11th wedding anniversary. We've been working extremely hard uh, today uh, and uh, we'll be at the G7 meetings uh, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, and uh, in, the, in the middle of all this, uh, I am taking a moment to uh, uh, celebrate on uh, personal funds uh, my wedding anniversary with my wife. I like that he put in there that it was personal funds. Yes and no. It's their 11th wedding anniversary. But here's the problem. His actual anniversary is not May 25th, in the middle of his trip to Japan. It's May 28th which is Saturday, which is after the summit's over. Why is this an issue? Well, when you go to these summits on official business, you take an awful lot of people with you. So there are bureaucrats that go with you to support the government. There are political staffers that go. The media have to be there. Everybody's there. You've got extra cabinet ministers there. And they all went yesterday so that Justin Trudeau could hold his meetings today. Then tomorrow he's taking a day off to celebrate his anniversary. Why not do it at the end? And then you could release everybody and he could still come back on the the government jet. Instead, for his honeymoon, or sorry, for his anniversary, he says he's paying you know, they're going to go spend the night at a traditional Japanese inn. I'm sure they're going to go out for a nice dinner. I don't begrudge anyone this work-life balance, as he calls it. And he's right. It's essential. But when they were planning this out, how could they not say, you know what? Okay, let's, um, let's do it in a way that we're not dragging around dozens upon dozens of bureaucrats and security officials and journalists It's costing everybody a ton of money to be there. Let's do it at the end. Or let's go somewhere when we come back. But this is an 
entitled to your entitlements sort of moment, isn't it? I don't want to sound petty, but I don't think this is petty. The Obamas, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's emulating Obama in this area as well. Because while the Obamas claim to be just normal people, he's found a way to take more vacations than any president that I can remember. Uh, The first President Bush used to take a lot of vacations up to Kenny Bunkport. But that was to a family compound that they've had up there for a long time. He would essentially go to his cottage. President Obama vacations in Martha's Vineyard at the homes of donors. He goes to Hawaii, which is his real home state. It's where he grew up. He'll go there. He will shut down entire areas. Thankfully, that doesn't happen with the Canadian prime minister because, well, not that many people care. But this is an example of them just deciding, you know what? We'll say it's on our own personal funds, and then it's all okay. Forget about all of the bureaucrats that you've taken along with you. Forget about all of the journalists that you're dragging along. Forget about the cost of all of them. Just say that you're paying for the hotel, therefore it's okay. I'm guessing it's not okay with you. I'm guessing that this is probably going to be something that we'll hear about over the next few days. When you're doing these international summits, you often have to leave earlier just so that you can get there, adjust to the time difference, get set up and be ready to work. This is completely unnecessary. And by the way, while he was there today on his official business, what was he trying to do? He's trying to sell auto companies on coming to Ontario. The same auto companies that are going to be looking at what's going on with Kathleen Wynne and her green plan and saying, give your head a shake, we're not showing up. Kathleen Wynne is going to drive the auto industry out of Ontario. Doesn't matter how nice Justin Trudeau is to them while he's there. Her Leap Manifesto-inspired green plan will drive the auto industry out. This push to have all of us driving electric cars will drive the auto industry out. Our assembly plants are not set up to build electric cars. There's only one. It's down towards Woodstock, and that's a Lexus model that starts at $68,000. Toyota makes a hybrid there, a Lexus hybrid. Starts at $68,000. The Civic plant, the Corolla plant, the Ford plant, all of these things, none of them make the electric cars. So Justin Trudeau can go over there and be nice to them. It's not going to help. What would help is if he actually allowed them to put out or import the liquid natural gas that they want. What's Asia hungry for that Canada has? Energy. What does Justin Trudeau not want us exporting? Energy. If he wants to go over for business, he has to know what the other people want. I don't think he does. When we come back, I want to bring you a little bit of a replay of an interview that we did earlier. And I'll get you details on the the event that's going to be going on on June 8th to help Allison Azer continue to put on pressure in finding and bringing home her children. It's an absolutely heartbreaking story. We had Allison on earlier today. 
We'll bring you a redux of that. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. I have some, some rocky of the coast of France. And Lily, join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Just looking at stunning video of this house fire in Greeley. Uh, from where I'm sitting, it looks like the home is completely destroyed. Thankfully, everyone getting out safe. But... Wow, what a crumbling, steaming mess that is going to be. Looks like it was a beautiful home, but as I said, looks like everyone got in, got out safe. Can't say that for Alison Azer. Um, is a woman whose story I, I've heard little bits about over the last little while. Mother fighting to get her kids back. And, and I didn't pay too much attention to it. And then I came across her story last week. She's been mounting a campaign to put pressure on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to pick up the phone and call Iranian uh, Prime Minister uh, Rouhani to get him to help in releasing her children. Alison Azer met uh, Sered Azer in 2002, or they got married in 2002. He was originally from Iran. Kurdish background from that country, came to Canada claiming refugee status. They got married. They were married for 12 years. They had four children. And when you see the pictures, they are just cute kids, aged uh, 11, 9, 7, and 3. But their marriage broke apart, and they divorced in 2014. Her now former husband took the children on a vacation, except He took them into northern Iraq, into the areas controlled by the PKK. This is a Kurdish separatist movement deemed a terrorist organization by Canada and others. The unfortunate part for Alison Azer in trying to get her kids back, in trying to get the government to help, is that all of this started to take place in the middle of the election last summer. It happened in August. So essentially we were left with just bureaucrats who do a fine job. But her kids were taken off to Kurdistan. They were there for several months. Now they're not. They've, they've moved on. I want to play part of the interview with Alison Azer and then still trying to make sure we can get you details for the event on June 8th. But... As a parent of four kids myself, this is a heartbreaking story. I can't imagine what she's going through and how distraught she must be. But she is fighting 
and going across the country. She'll be here June 8th. You'll hear about that in a moment. Here's part of the conversation with Allison. They're no longer in Kurdistan, though, are they? No. So, um, which, which uh, if if getting into a war zone is difficult, <laughs> where they are now in Iran could prove even more difficult. So Sarin um, possibly overstayed his welcome um, with the PKK. Um, we don't know for sure, but he crossed with the children illegally into Iran, the country that he fled from in 1994 when he showed up on Canada's doorstep and said, I'm, I'm fleeing Iran, I'll be executed if I'm returned. And there he is, um, crossing the border with four little kids illegally. He goes to the village, the city, pardon me, it's, it's, it's about 250,000 people, a city of Mahabad, where he grew up. His mom is there and his brothers and sisters. And um, he, he starts to think that he can just lead a life. And he starts uh, trying to get work, and he's shocked and outraged when the Ministry of Health and the universities in Iran ask for his credentials. And of course, he's a wanted fugitive. There's a red notice for his arrest. And so... This is a red notice issued by Interpol? Correct, because there is um, there are four counts of kidnapping uh, on his record. So we, we don't have this kid. We don't have diplomatic relations with Iran that will soon change, but they haven't been right. established yet. Uh, I, I actually don't know if if Iran cooperates with the likes of Interpol or, or or does it depend on whether there's Canadians involved? How how is the how has this changed your attempts to get your kids back? And, and what is the government doing for you? So actually, Iran has shown Quite, quite a willingness and a motivation to be helpful with, with this matter. Quite frankly, um, they don't seem to want Zarin either. He's, um, he's a Kurdish separatist. Um, he's had links with the Israeli foreign ministry. There's been many things over the years that um, actually put him in a fair bit of danger in Iran. And if he's in danger in Iran, um, I'm even more worried for my children. So the the onus is on our government, the Canadian government. They can and they must do more to engage the Iranian regime, which is willing. And there are channels of communication. You don't need formal diplomatic relations to pick up the phone. And in nine months, Prime Minister Trudeau has not picked up the phone for my kids. And I met with him last week, and I really appreciated his time. But now but you I need action. Him, why? Why in nine months? You're the leader of this country, and you're a father. Why haven't you done what you used to criticize Stephen Harper for not doing? And in fact, we know he did behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So... There was, there was Trudeau a... needs to pick up the phone to the Iranian President Rouhani and talk to him about the quickest and safest way to get my children back to Canada. There was a big outcry to get uh, Mohammed Fahmy released. Yeah. yeah. I think there needs to be a, a bigger outcry to get your children 
released Allison. I'm speaking with Allison Azer, whose four children were abducted by her estranged husband, former husband, taken to Iraq for several months and now in um, in Iran uh, and unfortunately not able to to get them back. I, I want to um, I want to ask you, I know you've got an event coming up in Ottawa on June 8th to raise awareness of this. And you're going to have uh, Amanda Lindout, who was uh, a Canadian who was captured, held for a long time. Is she going to come out and speak at it? Amanda has been an incredible supporter, both her and her mom. And uh, she did three similar events in Alberta a couple of weeks ago. They all sold out within days. And she's agreed to do an event for the Azur kids, my kids, in Ottawa on June the 8th. And tickets are still available it's an incredible evening to hear her story, and I'll be there. I'll share some updates um, and, and some insights into what I've experienced in the last nine months. And okay. it really, really means a lot to me and my family. Let's touch to base when you're. Let's touch base when you're in town. But where can people find out more about this event now? Thank you. The website is findazurkidsnow.com. And uh, on the website are tickets to the event and also um, a petition called Make the Call for Prime Minister Trudeau to pick up the phone and call the Iranian president about my children. All right. Thank, thank, thank you for sharing your story with, uh, with me, Allison. It's, it's heartbreaking, and I wish you and your kids all the best, and hopefully something changes soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for your time. All right, that wraps the show for today. I will uh, bring you details of that event as soon as we have it. We'll put it out on social media and mention it on air. And if you can help, then help. If you can sign her petition at findazerkidsnow.com, then please do that. Something's got to be done. There was an awful lot of brouhaha to get one journalist out of a jail in Egypt. What about these kids? Four innocent kids taken by their father against the law. With you tomorrow, that wraps the show for now. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm on your side. Wished out to the world When the Nazis find the whole place dark The thing God's left the museum for good Make you scared That's what I do If you're prepared I have to